podcast one production. January 30th, 1968. Lunar New Year, or as it's known in Vietnam, Tet. The conflicts in Vietnam had been ramping up for years, and by the end of 1967, the U.S. public had started to turn against the war, believing it a mistake. In a massive two-month battle, the North Vietnamese showed America the depth of their error, striking with both the breadth and depth the U.S. military had believed impossible. The Viet Cong simultaneously attacked just about every major city and town in South Vietnam. In one day, they increased the scope of the war dramatically. Howard Tuckner was there. The war came to Saigon early in the morning of January 31st. The first target was the symbol of the American presence in Vietnam, the United States Embassy. About 20 Viet Cong had invaded the embassy compound and were now battling American Marines and military police. The Viet Cong had penetrated to the center of what was supposed to be the most secure city in Vietnam. Although it took years to get to a ceasefire, the Vietnam War effectively ended with the Tet Offensive revealing the limits of American power, a power that had never been so expansive, never so capable of destroying the world. There's an old, old myth, the myth of the sword of Damocles. Damocles was sucking up to the king Dionysus, telling the king that he was truly fortunate as a great man of power and authority surrounded by magnificence. In response, Dionysus offered to switch place with Damocles for one day so that Damocles could taste that lifestyle firsthand. Damocles quickly accepted the king's proposal and sat down on the king's throne, surrounded by every luxury. But Dionysus, who'd made many enemies during his reign, arranged that a huge sword should hang above the throne, held by only the single hair of a horse's tail, to show Dionysus what it was really like to be king, always having to watch in fear and anxiety against mortal dangers. Shakespeare wrote, Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And in the 1960s, the U.S. was wearing that crown. It came at a cost. At the 1962 opening of the United Nations, President Kennedy put it plainly. Today, every inhabitant of this planet must contemplate the day when this planet may no longer be habitable. Every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut at any moment by accident or miscalculation or by madness 
The weapons of war must be abolished before they abolish us. America had enormous power, and the price that it paid for that power was the constant threat of nuclear annihilation. We don't think about the Cold War very often these days. In 1968, that war wasn't cold. The North Vietnamese were backed by the Soviet Union, so the Tet Offensive had a geopolitical dimension. Lose that battle and maybe lose the whole war. Over in Europe, another battle was brewing. Czechoslovakia fell into the sphere of Soviet influence at the end of the Second World War, when the Allies tacitly divided Europe, largely to avoid a war between the Soviets and the Americans. In January 1968, the Czechs staged their own counter-revolution, electing reformist Alexander Dubček to head the Czech Communist Party. Dubček initiated reforms liberalising the strict communist state, worrying the Soviets, and eventually culminating in an invasion by Soviet-led forces of the Warsaw Pact, who turned the clock back to Czechoslovakia before 1968. All of this flickered across TV screens every night as the revolution in Czechoslovakia flowered and died. And the Americans, as powerful as they were, couldn't do anything about it. Seated on the throne, surrounded by magnificence, America pondered that sort of Damocles overhead, threatening nuclear fire if they dared disturb the careful balance between East and West. So much power and so little capacity. That's 1968. It was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the summer of riots. Heading to a winter of despair. It was 1968. When the world began. Hi, this is Mark Pesci of The Next Billion Seconds, and to co-host this four-episode miniseries, I'm joined by Dr. Genevieve Bell. Hi, Mark. Yes, futurists mostly talk about the future, but the best futurists are the ones who have spent some time studying the past. And Genevieve and I have spent a lot of time recently looking back 50 years into 1968. Our story about 1968 actually begins 11 years earlier, November 1957. That's the radio broadcast of Sputnik, the first artificial satellite. A huge achievement and a huge problem. Because if the Soviets could lob a 100-kilogram radio transmitter into near-Earth orbit, well, that meant they could drop a thermonuclear warhead anywhere on the surface of the planet. The sort of Damocles had suddenly become very real. America had largely been coasting in the years since winning the Second World War. President Eisenhower needed to change that because of Sputnik. The Soviet Union now has, in the combined category of scientists and engineers, a greater number than the United States. And it is producing graduates in these fields at a much faster rate. 
Recent studies of the educational standards of the Soviet Union show that this gain in quantity can no longer be considered offset by lack of quality. This trend is disturbing. Indeed, according to my scientific advisors, this is for the American people the most critical problem of all. In true government style, Eisenhower threw money at the problem. Lots of money. Starting with the Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA. Now, ARPA was supposed to handle all of the space flight and advanced research we'd need to keep up with the Soviets. But politics being what they are, space flight hived off to become NASA. That left advanced research, which meant what in the 1950s? Well, two things. Advanced warfare and advanced command and control. Advanced warfare? ARPA did fundamental research into counterinsurgency strategies, work that paid off well during the war in Afghanistan 40 years later. Command and control, well, that hadn't changed much since the battlefield telephone. And military leaders needed far better than what they had because their windows to make decisions that might let loose the nuclear sword of Damocles had fallen from days to minutes. How could they do that? Well, there wasn't a lot around to help. Computers could do some of that, theoretically, but computers were crude. There weren't very many of them. They were very hard to program, and that made them nearly useless for keeping tabs on Soviet nukes. But some clever folks had some ideas on how we might be able to use computers to help things along. And first among those was J.C.R. Licklider. Licklider had a background in psychology, but when computers came along in the 1950s, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with them. Use them to help people be better at whatever they wanted to do. Now, he called this the man-computer symbiosis and wrote a paper on the topic in 1960, just as things were getting started at ARPA. It laid out a startling vision for the future. The hope is that in not too many years, human brains and computing machines will be coupled together very tightly and that the resulting partnership will think as no human brain has ever thought and process data in a way not approached by the information handling machines we know today. Back in 1960, that sort of thinking was beyond radical. It was nearly in the realm of science fiction. Today, many of us rely on Google and Wikipedia and the smartphones in our hands to stay continuously well-informed about absolutely everything. Licklider's hope seems less like science fiction than something that's already happened a few years back. Here's Licklider a few years later, talking about the promise of another unproven technology, one that we know today as the internet. The computer technology has been moving in a way that nothing else people have ever known has moved. Here's a field that gets a thousand times as good in 20 years. The communication field hasn't been able to keep pace, but the melding of computers and communication and the switch to digital communication technology, aided and abetted by satellites, is doing something pretty good for communication. Licklider could see the future, knew how we'd be using computers today and recognized the problems that needed to be solved along the way. He got himself appointed to a top role at ARPA, heading the Information Processing Technologies Office, where he got to shovel the government's money at bringing that future into being. It worked better than anyone expected. The Internet begins with ARPA. That's a little further along. In the early 1960s, there were more essential problems to solve, such as getting a computer to make sense to a person. In the 1950s, People had to learn how to talk 
computer. In our first episode, we looked at how art, and in particular Jason Reichardt's cybernetic serendipity, helped to pivot from humans speaking computer to computers speaking human. Licklider and the generation of researchers he inspired drove that pivotal moment, working to make computer talk human. First amongst that new generation of researchers was Ivan Sutherland. You're likely never to have heard of Ivan Sutherland. Now, along with Doug Engelbart, who we'll focus on in episode three, Ivan Sutherland might be the most obscure giant of computing. Sutherland should be a household name like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, but he's not. In the early 1960s, Sutherland worked at Lincoln Labs. That's a Massachusetts research facility generously funded by Licklider and ARPA to solve some of the hard problems of getting computers to speak human. Now, Sutherland had access to two very rare things. First, he had an incredibly rare interactive computer known as the TX2. And unlike computers that took a batch of instructions, performed them, and then waited for the next batch, an interactive computer constantly engaged with whomever used it. There weren't many interactive computers in the early 1960s. They cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they hadn't really found their place outside of research laboratories. But Sutherland, he had this TX2 pretty much all to himself. And he also had access to one of the very first high-resolution display monitors. It looked like an old-fashioned oscilloscope with a circular screen. But that display was under the control of the TX2 and could draw anything it wanted anywhere on that screen. That doesn't sound at all remarkable today. Every computer can draw pretty much whatever it wants on any display. That's the way computers work. Ivan Sutherland is the reason why all computers work this way. The display had an attachment, something known as a light pen. You can think of it as the equivalent to an Apple Pencil on an iPad or the stylus on a Galaxy Note smartphone. Touch the display with the light pen and the computer would know where the pen had made contact with the display. Sutherland saw that light pen and immediately knew what to do with it. Over a period of three months, he wrote Sketchpad, the world's first interactive computer drawing program. I use an oscilloscope here, which is much like a, uh, a TV set, except it's being driven by the computer. In order to get the information into the computer, we have to draw somehow on this display. And we use the light pen. In order to construct a meaningful engineering drawing, we have to have several graphical manipulations. Ivan Sutherland's programs can draw straight lines and circles. In order to do this, we can position this bright spot in the middle, middle of the cross that you notice at a desired location. And we press the button to command the computer to draw a line. It will draw a line from this position where I am now to any subsequent position of my light pen. Touch the screen. Draw a line. Draw another line. Touch the screen to drag one line towards the other until they snap together. Or delete a line and draw more lines and on and on and on. It all sounds fairly dull today, but that's because so many computer programs embody the basic ideas of Sketchpad. Almost everything we do in front of a display today points back to Sketchpad, whether we're drawing things on the screen or shooting aliens or typing texts onto a word processor, it all comes back to Sketchpad. And Sutherland was just getting started. When we return, we'll take a look at Sutherland's plans for the ultimate display.
Welcome back to 1968 when the world began as we take a look at the creative genius of Ivan Sutherland. It's no stretch to say today's computers are interactive and fun to play with because of Sutherland. His Sketchpad software let you draw on a screen. Sketchpad made using a computer feel almost natural. So natural that we see small children clicking on books and magazines, trying to interact with print the way they do with screens. Sketchpad established Sutherland as the leading thinker in interactive computing. So when J.C.R. Licklider stepped down from his post at ARPA, doling out money to lay the foundations of modern computing, he tapped Sutherland to replace him. Now, as director, Sutherland could throw money around, and because of the gravitas that came with that role, he knew that anything he published in his professional capacity would be widely read. So in 1965, Sutherland jotted down a short paper describing where he believed things would be heading in computing, an essay he titled The Ultimate Display, in which he described the ideal computer interface. If the task of the display is to serve as a looking glass into the mathematical wonderland constructed in computer memory, it should serve as many senses as possible. By working with such displays of mathematical phenomena, we can learn to know them as well as we know our own natural world. Such knowledge is the major promise of computer displays. Sutherland even joked about high-fidelity interfaces to smell and taste. You know, smell-o-vision. But his aim was to provoke researchers into making displays so realistic they could portray anything imaginable as though it were virtually real. After he, too, had moved from ARPA, Sutherland set up a research lab at Harvard to bring his ideas to life. That ultimate display, or at least the first version of this ultimate display, it had to serve as many senses as possible. Now, for Sutherland, this meant the eyes, obviously, and the ears, and now here's the new bit. The body. Sutherland wanted a display that could sense and adjust itself to the position of anyone using it. And that way the display wouldn't be here or there, it would be everywhere. The display would be following the user's motions and adapting to them. Now the best way to do that would be to put the displays directly over the eyes. But that would just give you a fixed image. Wherever you looked, you'd see the same image, like someone painted something over your glasses. Unless, and here's where things got clever, unless you started to track the head. Because wherever the head goes, the eyes have to follow. So if you know where the head is, a display can adapt to the position of the eyes. Okay, so how do you track the position of someone's head? Well, Sutherland built this great big mechanical armature. It hung from the ceiling and the display was mounted underneath it. You put your head into the display And then the armature would move with the head, dragging this way and that way as the head moved around. Now, that concept is known as head tracking. It's key to making an ultimate display. Track the head and you can create a world in front of the eyes that begins to look real. So now that he'd put displays directly over the eyes and an armature above the head to track movements, Sutherland needed something to draw on the display. Sketchpad had a television-like screen, so everything was displayed in two dimensions. The ultimate display, well, you could move this way and that, you could look up and down, you could look side to side, all three dimensions. So anything drawn onto this ultimate display 
would need to be presented in three dimensions. We see a lot of 3D graphics these days, mostly in video games. But none of that existed when Sutherland developed his ultimate display, so he had to invent them. Real-time, three-dimensional graphics, everything from Doom to Grand Theft Auto, all of it begins with Ivan Sutherland. Sutherland invented interactive computing and interactive 3D. Maybe you can start to see why he's so important. Sutherland drew the 3D images onto the displays, and those images responded to the position of the head as tracked by that armature. He connected head to display to computer code, all in a single interactive system. And best of all, these displays were see-through. His ultimate display mixed computer-generated 3D with a view of the real world. Ivan Sutherland invented VR 50 years ago. The whole field comes out of his work creating the ultimate display. Once he'd done his work, he needed to show it around, show people it was possible to build that ultimate display. Maybe not the fully realised version he'd described in the paper, but something that got enough of the basics right. Right enough to serve as a foundation for the next 50 years. And he had just the opportunity coming up in December 1968 at an event known as the Fall Joint Computer Conference, or FJCC. These joint computer conferences had been going on, one in the spring, one in the autumn, for a handful of years. They brought together the core researchers in computing, most of whom were receiving generous research grants from ARPA, for a few days of papers and presentations and show and tell. And Sutherland had a lot to show. And he wrote it all up in a paper titled, A Head-Mounted Display. That paper is the technical foundation for virtual reality. It starts there with Sutherland's first version of his ultimate display. Now, more than that, Sutherland showed how to blend the real world with the synthetic, something that is still difficult to do today. And he brought all of that work, his ultimate display, to the fall joint computer conference. And when those thousands of computer scientists got a look at the device with the head-tracking armature hanging down from the ceiling, they immediately dubbed it... The Sword of Damocles. And the name stuck. Because this ultimate display seemed so wonderful and so precarious... Ivan Sutherland invented computer interaction as we understand it today, and then went on to invent 3D graphics and virtual reality, all by the time he'd turned 30. Now, it would be hard to top all that, but he did, as an educator. Sutherland moved to the University of Utah, and with David Evans, he established the premier university program in 3D computer graphics. Pretty much everyone who was anyone in the field passed through that program in the 1970s including a grad student named John Warnock, who got his PhD under Evans and Sutherland and then went on to work for the firm the two founded, named Evans and Sutherland. Evans and Sutherland was the first computer graphics firm designing simulators used by the military to train jet fighter pilots and by commercial airlines to train their pilots for extraordinary situations. These systems cost tens of millions of dollars, money worth spending, and each new system pushed the envelope on 3D computer graphics. Evans and Sutherland became the commercial foundation for modern computer graphics. 
Everything in Pixar's films or everything in NVIDIA's chips, all of it traces back to Evans and Sutherland. They built big systems for the military and worked on hard problems in display. When Warnock worked at Evans and Sutherland, he looked at the problem of text. How do you draw words onto a computer display in a way that makes it consistently readable? Warnock solved that problem with a new programming language known as PostScript. And he'd go on to found his own company to make PostScript tools, Adobe. Adobe came of age in 1985 when Steve Jobs introduced the LaserWriter, the first inexpensive, high-quality printer powered by PostScript. Almost all text that's been printed by a computer or drawn onto the screen has been influenced by PostScript. It's become the pencil lead of the computer age. And of course, Adobe is famous for one particular piece of software, Photoshop. It's hard to remember a world before Photoshop, before we could retouch or change a photo in almost any way imaginable with a few mouse clicks. There was a time when photographs were considered completely objective captures of reality. Photoshop changed that. Photographs are no longer real. They are a mix of the virtual and the real. They're a bit of Sutherland's ultimate display. And Photoshop, it's the full flower of what Sutherland sought to create in Sketchpad all the way back in 1963. Touch the screen and draw. Sketchpad has even influenced virtual reality. In 2014, a small interactive design firm in San Francisco, Skillman and Hackett, and yes, that name is a pun. They showed off the first modern virtual reality application, Tilt Brush. Think Photoshop, but in three dimensions where you can draw and paint and sculpt the light all around you. People who try Tilt Brush tend to get lost in it as they play and explore and experience what it's simply like to move a hand through space and see the virtual world change. It's Sketchpad for virtual reality and finally brought together these two great pillars of Ivan Sutherland's career. Google bought Tiltbrush from Skillman and Hackett just a few weeks later because they could also see how those pieces came together. Interaction, visualization, and the ultimate display. In episode six of series two, you heard Tony Parisi tell us about augmented reality spectacles. It's the way we'll be using computers within a few years, turning the entire world into the ultimate display. That will be Ivan Sutherland's ultimate vindication. Sutherland is still very much with us, researching and developing innovative chip designs at the University of Oregon. With a bit of luck, he'll live long enough to take one of his ultimate displays for a test drive. And maybe, just maybe, Sutherland will finally be recognised as one of the great creative geniuses of the 20th century. On the next episode of 1968, When the World Began, we'll take a look at the most important hour in the entire history of computing, the mother of all demos, and the creative force of nature behind that, Douglas Engelbart. That's coming your way in our next episode. Now, one book proved particularly instrumental in writing this episode. The Dream Machine, J.C.R. Licklider, and the Revolution That Made Computing Personal by Mitchell Waldrop. It's well worth the read. If you want to learn more about ARPA or J.C.R. Licklider, Ivan Sutherland, Sketchpad, the Fall Joint Computer Conference, Sutherland's Sword of Damocles, John Warnock, Tiltbrush, all of this, cruise on over to our website at nextbillionseconds.com. 
You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's at nextbillionseconds.com. 1968, When the World Began, was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Genevieve Bell, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. Genevieve and I referenced a lot of historical materials in this episode, and we'd like to express our gratitude. Thanks to NBC News for their coverage of the Tet Offensive. Thanks to YouTuber 17 Moments in Soviet History for access to the film Resisting the Enemies of Socialism. Thanks to the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library for an excerpt from his 1962 address to the United Nations. Thanks to Archive.org contributor AA1TJ for their recording of Sputnik. Thanks to the Dwight David Eisenhower Presidential Library for an excerpt from his 1957 speech. Thanks to producer Stephen King and director Peter Chevney for providing us a bit of insight from JCR Licklider in their film Computer Network's The Heralds of Resource Sharing. Thanks to MIT Lincoln Labs for an excerpt from their 1965 film demonstrating Sketchpad. Excerpts from Man-Computer Symbiosis and The Ultimate Display were performed by voice actors. And special thanks for one book that proved absolutely vital in our research— the Dream Machine, J.C.R. Licklider, and the Revolution That Made Computing Personal by Mitchell Waltrip. It's a great read and it's well worth it. This is Mark Pesci and Genevieve Bell. Thank thanking you, you for, for listening. listening.